Many of you will be familiar with the phrase, the kingdom of God, because you'll have heard it said many, many times in the life of this church. And I'm assuming that most of you here will have heard the recordings that were referred to earlier, those Vision and Values recordings, which were recorded 13 and a half years ago. And when we talked about the kind of church a vineyard is, we talked about this person who represents you know, a family and a hospital and a school and so on, uh, but they are stood upon the foundation of the Word of God. So we're built upon the Bible, and the lens through which we view the whole of Scripture is the lens of the kingdom of God. In our vision statement, it contains the phrase that we aim to make and train and equip disciples to do what? To fill pews and wait to go to heaven a number of decades later? No, we actually aim to equip people to be effective in the extending of God's kingdom. And that is the business that we are in uh, as the church, expressing God's nature in every way and uh, extending the rule and the reign of God in our own lives, in the life of our church, and in the life of the city and the wider community. We pray, as Jesus taught us to pray, that his kingdom would come, that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven, and we work in every way that we can towards that end. Now, Jesus, in his teaching, he talked continually about the kingdom of God. Many of his parables are pictures which describe aspects of it. And uh, he very often started his parables with the kingdom of God is like, or in Matthew's gospel, I think it is the kingdom of heaven is like. It's like a mustard seed. It's like treasure hidden in a field. He said, what shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It's like yeast that a woman worked all through the dough. It's like a landowner who went to hire men to work in his vineyard and many more, some of the... uh, images behind me depict some of those parables about the kingdom is like this. He said that the reason he was sent was to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. He talked about how to enter the kingdom. He sent his disciples out to proclaim the kingdom of God and then to make sure that they really got the message, the importance of this message of the kingdom. After his resurrection, he appeared to them, it says, over a period of 40 days and spoke to them about the kingdom of God. They were sent out then with that message to pass on to us. And so it's the most important message that uh, there is. And uh, those of us who are followers of Jesus, we need to understand that message and we need to live it out. The Vineyard Movement was started, pioneered by a man called John Wilbur. He's since gone to be with the Lord, but uh, there are now churches, vineyard churches, in scores of countries all over the world. And he was impacted many decades ago by the writings of a theologian by the name of George Ladd, uh, as well as others. And as a movement, we are built upon an understanding of the kingdom which affects everything, everything in church life, everything that there is. It's not just an academic theological understanding, but it's something which affects the way we live. It affects the way we engage with society, the way we approach healing and deliverance, the way we deal with sin the way we care for the poor and our planet, and on and on. Now, I've never taught a series on this subject. I probably should have many years ago, but I mentioned in this this year's vision talk that I was intending to do that, and I'm excited about starting that series today. Many of our pastoral staff have studied the subject through the Vineyard Bible Institute's theological training, and uh, we'll be making that course available to others, leaders and others, Uh, at some point in the future. Now I'm basing my talks, or much of it, 
on the material uh, that uh, is taught by really the vineyard's foremost theologian on the subject of the kingdom, Derek Morphew uh, from South Africa, uh, together with his book, Breakthrough. I think we're selling them in a different color cover, but we have them at the bookstall, and uh, as well as some material by John Wimber and uh, George Ladd and others. But when the opportunity comes, if you're interested in studying this in more depth, I would encourage you to do it, because really what I'm going to be giving you is a very condensed version, a very skim-the-surface kind of version of uh, his material, really as something of a taster. Now, sermons vary. Sermons you hear from this stage will vary. There's a spectrum from, from one end. You get those sort of highly entertaining ones with lots of anecdotal illustrations. They may be very inspiring, but they may not actually teach us very much. And then at the other end, there may be the not-so-entertaining ones, which are more educational in content. They're perhaps full of profound truths, and they require a bit more effort to actually you know, engage with them on the part of the listener. And those extremes might be compared to a McDonald's McFlurry at one end and maybe a really prime steak at the other. Now, the steak needs, you know, it takes more effort to eat it and to digest it, but it's well worth actually doing that. Now, we don't just want to live on McFlurries. We don't just want to live on steaks. Uh, neither of those is going to make us healthy. And so within the preaching diet of this church, it's sometimes worth giving talks like today's, which will require a little more chewing on to be able to fully digest them. When Jesus began his ministry, he came announcing this. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Now, if someone said that on the streets of Nottingham, people would look very blankly at them. You know, many Christians might understand something of what was being meant. But Jesus was saying this in first century Israel. And it was explosive news to say that the time has come. Because of the context into which he spoke, which was a a society desperately waiting for the coming of the kingdom. They were desperately waiting for the time to come. And the Old Testament background then is just absolutely essential in understanding the coming of the kingdom in Jesus. And so tonight I want to skim through three pictures in the Old Testament which the people of Israel were all familiar with and which paint the picture for us of this great expectation of the coming kingdom. So if we understand where they were coming from, we'll understand just how incredible this news was. The time has come and the kingdom of God is near. And the first of these pictures is the picture of the Exodus. About three and a half thousand years ago, the Israelites were living in Egypt at the time of the Pharaohs. And they were in slavery, enslaved by the Egyptians. They were building buildings, they were making bricks, they were working really incredibly hard under terrible conditions of slavery. And the story of the Exodus is one of God stepping in and setting them free. It's the story of kingdoms colliding. God called Moses to lead his people. He said, I want you to go to Pharaoh and say, set my people free. And Moses said, well, supposing I go to the Israelites and I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. I mean, they all knew about God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But he said, if if I say the God of your fathers has sent me to you and they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. And you'll recall, if you were here two weeks ago when I talked about Jesus and his divinity, that title, I am, which he often used. 
And God reveals his name, I am, which in that culture, a name described a person. It was actually described the, the attributes of their character. I am is written as Yahweh, and in your Bibles, you'll find it translated as the Lord in capital letters, wherever you find that name I am and Yahweh is the, uh, the Lord. I am. Now, the Hebrew verb to be carries with it the idea of being dynamically present or coming to be present. And it signifies that God has entered the situation. He's become present. He's coming to intervene in your situation and release you from oppression and justice. So God, I am, Yahweh, the Lord, all the same, just different titles for the same person, shows himself in the whole story of the Exodus to be far more powerful than the gods of Egypt, culminating in the ten plagues which God sent to persuade Pharaoh that he meant business and indeed that his kingdom far outweighed in terms of power Pharaoh's kingdom, that he was more powerful than all of their gods put together. And it's an interesting study for another time, and not in this series, to see how the, in the plagues God chose to demonstrate the crushing of each of their gods. Each of the plagues is attached to one of their gods and is basically saying, I am the king over all of you. Now after God made a way for the Israelites to, to leave Egypt, then to cross the Red Sea, and then destroyed the pursuing Egyptian army as the waters of the Red Sea closed over them, they sang a song, and in that song they proclaimed this, the Lord reigns forever and ever. The Lord reigns. In other words, he is king. His kingdom is the greatest, and the Lord has set his people free. So that's the picture we have early on. You'll find it in the book, not surprisingly, called Exodus in the early part of the Old Testament. And that's a picture, first of all. The second picture is the reigns of two kings, David and his son Solomon. So the Lord, the king, the king of the universe, ruled his people, but he did so through an adopted human king. And under the rulership of David and then his son Solomon, the nation enjoyed a time of incredible victory over their enemies and a time of great peace and prosperity. God's power, his rule, his reign was really demonstrated through the reign of these two kings. And this was seen as an idealized picture of the kingdom. When God reigns, this is what life is like. And this was a reference point for all the prophets who wrote after that time as they looked back to this golden age, the best time that Israel ever had. With David, he was a warrior king, and the Lord gave him victory wherever he went. You know, whichever army Israel fought were conquered, and they became subject to David's rule, and thus to God's rule. David ruled over Israel it says, doing all that was just and right. And so inherent in the kingdom and the expression of God's nature, there was social justice. There was righteousness. And under his kingship, the nation flourished. Now his son, who succeeded him to the throne as king, uh, under him, the picture becomes even more wonderful. I just want to show you one short text. If you've got a Bible, turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 4. Just gives us a cameo, a glimpse of what it was like living under Solomon's reign. 1 Kings chapter 4. And beginning at verse 20. The people of Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand on the seashore. 
They ate, they drank, and they were happy. And Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the river Euphrates to the land of the Philistines as far as the border of Egypt. These countries brought tribute and were Solomon's subjects all his life. Solomon's daily provisions, so some of the tribute that all these other nations are bringing to his table, this is his daily provisions, and I've just changed the uh, units into uh, contemporary units. Solomon's daily provisions were five tons of the finest flour, 10 tons of meal, 10 head of stall-fed cattle, 20 of pasture-fed cattle, and 100 sheep and goats, as well as deer, gazelles, roebucks, and choice fowl. For he ruled over all the kingdoms west of the river Euphrates, from Tifsar to Gaza, and had peace on all sides. During Solomon's lifetime, Judah and Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, lived in safety, everyone under their own vine and fig tree. It's just this incredible picture of abundance, as well as living at peace. They ate, they drank, and they were happy. There was peace, it says, on all sides. No more wars like under David there had been. Peace on all sides. And the Jewish word for peace, as you may know, is the word shalom. Now, shalom is a lot more than just simple peace in terms of the absence of war. Shalom is, just speaks of this picture, basically. Just this incredible abundance and prosperity and blessing and happiness and, and everything wonderful happening. It says here, each family had their own piece of land. And they could sit under their grapevine. Now, I didn't know, realize you could sit under a grapevine. If you've seen the vineyards on your wine bottle, they're usually rows and rows of endless uh, vines. But I, in the Middle East, I was there one time, and uh, someone was preparing dinner. And they went outside to pick vine leaves in which to wrap up various bits and bobs and cook them. And um, they went into this area, which actually they picked them from the ceiling, because it was like a sort of a timber structure, like a carport, And uh, you could sit under there, and the vine actually grew right over the whole top of it. And so you just had, in the Middle Eastern sun, a place to go and sit under this dappled shade. You've got grapes dripping, you know, sort of growing there and ripening, as well as these leaves. And uh, you can actually sit under a vine. And so here's the picture. You could sit, each one could sit under their own vine or under their fig tree, enjoying good relationships with their neighbors Lots of children, it says they were as numerous as the sand on the seashore, and in that culture, just having as many babies as possible uh, was just a wonderful blessing. And they're sitting there chomping on figs, ripe figs, lifting a glass of wine, toasting Solomon, and praising God. An incredible time in Israel's history. We're told a few chapters on that when the Queen of Sheba heard about the fame of Solomon and heard about his relationship with the Lord, with Yahweh, and heard about his kingdom, she came to visit and she was overwhelmed by everything she saw, his wisdom, by the palace, by the food on his table and the burnt offerings and so on. And that is a picture, I think it's in chapter 10 of uh, 1 Kings, I think it is, and it's a picture of the world visiting the church when the kingdom of God is being fully expressed sometimes they come and see and they want what they see sometimes people come and they're overwhelmed when the kingdom is truly being expressed through his people in power there's a magnetism when the community is truly celebrating the kingdom when the presence of God is among us people come and see and they're overwhelmed and uh, you know I've had countless conversations with some of you and others who have visited uh, people just say there's something different about this people. Some people have walked in here and just said this is, 
can you feel the love in this place? I'm like, I'm, I'm so used to it. I've been in this place for decades of being in church. But uh, where else do you go and find a community that loves each other and indeed extends that love to the visitor? Impossible things seem to happen. People get healed. We just saw that healing on the streets video. Just, wow, that's incredible. That just happens in Nottingham with teams from here. People are being healed. Incredible ideas get realized. Just to give you some little snapshots here of one particularly in, in terms of care and love that you find experienced in the life of the church here. For many, many years, some of you will know a guy called Enoch has been in this church many years. And 10 years ago, he had to flee his country for reasons of persecution, leaving behind part of his family, leaving behind his eight-year-old son. And for the last three or four years, people in the life of the church here have worked hard on making phone calls and writing letters and uh, visiting visa offices and just pressing this case and pressing to try and get his son to be able to come to England and join the family. And um, then paying for his flight and everything as it unfolded. And I'm absolutely thrilled to say last Sunday I met Mike. He's 18. Having not seen his family for 10 years, he was here. And indeed, he's now here and part of the church with his, with his father. So it's just a wonderful story. Praise God. A guy who joined the church through the arches came with uh, an addiction to a certain drug and uh, was prayed for and was set free. Apparently, he told me instantly from that drug. As soon as he tried to take it again, he was absolutely almost physically sick. So just a total reversal uh, and uh, breaking free from addiction. A disruptive child came to Vineyard Kids one Sunday and his school teacher, who also I think happens to be in the church or was visiting, uh, noticed the following day, just after one visit to our children's work, that this child's behavior had completely changed. There was a young mother who fell down the stairs and protecting her baby as she did so, she fell really badly and injured her back. She came to church, having had a week of just being in desperate pain, came to church on crutches. There was a word of knowledge, apparently. She responded, she got prayed for. And the following morning, uh, she didn't realize until she got up, gone to the bathroom, walked down the stairs, she didn't realize that she had no pain and therefore she didn't use her crutches. An unchurched young man visited here and told a friend, this has to be the best kept secret in Nottingham. I had no idea that so many people, there were so many Christians in the Western world, let alone actually in one room, but, uh, you know, and young people and just thought that the things going on here are amazing. God touched hearts recently in a recession. You know, when you do fundraising out in the world, people, they sponsor you to run up and down mountains at 5p a mile or whatever it happens to be. It is completely unheard of that in a recession, a people would respond by giving over 1.6 million in a week for land and building to contribute to the transformation of this city. It's an amazing thing. We find people come here sometimes and for weeks they, they tell me just in the worship they just they can't control. They just keep weeping. They're moved by God's presence here. They're moved by what God is doing. And this is not about us being a really special church. This is about God's kingdom being expressed. All this stuff is simply God's nature and God's people engaging with the expression of that nature. Now from there on in Israel's history, it's downhill. Following King Solomon's reign, 
there's a decline and a collapse of Israel's experience of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of Israel became divided. It was divided into the northern and the southern kingdoms. And each of them had their own king. And most of them were rubbish at being kings and leading people in any sort of godly way. And in the books of Chronicles and of Kings, we see this repeated phrase occurring. King so-and-so died and his son became king and he also did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And so, you know, you just see this decline in the, the, just the corruption of the leadership and, the, and indeed of the nation. And then the prophets, people who spoke on behalf of God at the time before the exile, before even the captivity, I'm confusing you, I'll try to keep it from detail. The prophets at the time warned the nation, repent of your worship of other gods, of idols. Repent of that and turn from your oppressing of the poor or God will raise up another nation and they will conquer you and they will take you away into captivity. They didn't repent and in turn the northern kingdom fell and they were taken into captivity and then sometime later the southern kingdom also fell and many of the people were taken off into distant lands. That's how conquering kings managed to uh, you know, rule was they just took most of the people away and planted people that they'd also conquered back into uh, that land. And under Solomon's rule, under David's rule, there had been an awful lot of singing going on, a lot of rejoicing. People used to celebrate in worship songs like the Psalms that David wrote. It says that Solomon wrote oodles of songs himself. And then they were displaced. They were taken off to Babylon. Uh, that's modern-day Iraq. And Psalm 137 captures how they felt. Psalm 137. If you know the Boney M song, you'll know this off by heart. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. That's Jerusalem, the capital of the people of Israel. There on the poplars we hung our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? They were just gutted that they hadn't turned back to God, that they'd not turned from their idolatry, had not turned from their oppression of the poor. They found themselves here in Babylon. They were just absolutely distraught, basically saying, we've lost everything. We've lost the nation. We're like slaves again. It's like we're back in Egypt before the time of the Exodus. And so that's the end of the second picture that uh, leads us now into the prophetic promise. The third picture is the prophetic promise. At the time of the exile, we find the prophets begin to talk about restoration. Now prophets, for those of you who are not familiar with the Bible, are people who spoke under the influence of God and saying what he wanted said generally to a nation uh, often using words which painted word pictures, painted incredible pictures generally of the future. And so having lost the kingdom, the picture now was the Lord will one day become king again. This was the prophetic hope. In Habakkuk, in chapter 3, he was one of the minor prophets in his book, he recalls the great things that God once did, powerfully opposing Israel's enemies, and he looks forward to a restoration of those things in the past. And this is what he says in verse 16 following. I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. 
Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, there are no, there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. In other words, I will wait for the day when God will come back and do again what he did in the days of the Exodus and the days of David and his son Solomon. Isaiah, one of the other prophets, said, don't remember the former things, I'm going to do a new thing, which will eclipse the past and make what God did in those times like nothing in comparison. He says, see, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. You won't be thinking about David's reign and Solomon's reign and all that, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. And many of the prophets were talking about the day of the Lord, a day coming when the kingdom would be reestablished, a day when Yahweh would return and set up and establish his kingdom. Some said it would happen in the latter days or in the last day. A long time will elapse, but at some point in history, God will intervene and the time will come. And uh, on that day, some incredible things will happen. The two Old Testament prophets who influenced Jesus' language the most are Isaiah, who we've heard from just there, and also Daniel. And all the prophets basically were were using different images to say the same thing about this prophetic hope of one day God reestablishing his kingdom. But just to touch on what Isaiah says, you know, he's talking about amazing images. That's just how prophets speak. They speak a bit like dreams, You can't quite make sense necessarily of them chronologically and then this happened and this, but there's all these scenes opening up before them and they're just trying to capture it in words as they write their books. The glory of God will be so great on that day that the sun will be embarrassed to shine. Like a great flood, that day will burst upon us. A descendant of David who is his coming, and he will be greater than David ever was, with more anointing than David ever had. All nations will be attracted to him. In Isaiah, we find the servant passages, which paint a picture of the Messiah, this coming one who would establish the kingdom as someone who would actually suffer in order to bring about the result that's necessary here for the saving of the nation. And uh, he, he says, he is the one in whom the covenant will be restored, and through whom the failure of the nation will be absorbed as he takes on the punishment. The coming of the Holy Spirit is depicted in imagery like floods, transforming the dry wilderness into superabundance. This dry, arid land will become full of flowers and vegetation. God's people will flourish abundantly with the coming of this descendant of David. There will be more than just shalom, there will be forgiveness of sins. God will blot out the transgressions of his people. It will involve the healing of the sick. It will involve the releasing from every form of captivity. Not just from occupying armies of other nations and so on, but the blind will see, the lame will walk. Prisoners will be set free. He will bring liberty from bondage. You know, the breaking of addictions and every other form of bondage, it's going to be shattered by the power of God. And then there will be shalom at a whole new level. And then there are pictures describing this shalom at this whole new level like the, you know, the lion and the lamb and the little child playing together in the garden and no one's eating each other. 
Death itself will be reversed. The dead will rise. And there will be a feast, uh, the feast of all feasts, totally eclipsing Solomon's table. God will be the host, the host, all nations, the guests, and the best of meats, it says, and the finest of wines will be served. The mountains and the hills, it says, will burst into song. And all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Whether that's going to literally happen or not, we don't know. But that's the picture that Isaiah sees of this incredible time. All reality will be changed. The world will be replaced as we know it and a new age will begin. A new people of God. To Israel will be added people from every nation and that includes us. Gathered into a new Jerusalem where there will be safety and peace. And everything which is broken will be restored. There'll be a new heaven and a new earth being established as God rules and reigns supreme. Everything evil will be judged. Every ruler who's opposed God will be brought down. And God will remove everything that's evil. Everything that has come up against his kingdom. So when the kingdom of God comes, this is the picture that Isaiah has painted. This is what it's going to look like. This is going to happen. And when Jesus stood up, and said, the time has come, the kingdom of God has come near. All this was inherent in that announcement. For these hearers, it's like, the, de- the time has come. This stuff that we're expecting, in some way, is going to happen. A second prophet who spoke God's message about uh, deliverance from exile was Daniel. And in the book written by the prophet Daniel, we have a, a dramatized twist to this picture. There are two chapters in that book which are of particular interest relating to this subject, Daniel chapter 2 and chapter 7. In chapter 2, Daniel is found as the only person who can interpret and indeed tell Nebuchadnezzar his dream. Nebuchadnezzar was the king of the known world at the time. And he has this dream where he sees this statue made of a different variety of materials and it uh, epitomizes, it symbolizes a series of world empires. And then this statue is struck by this huge rock, which then just pulverizes it, smashes it to bits, and then this rock somehow grows until it covers the whole earth. It's a picture of a future day when God's kingdom will violently and cataclysmically destroy and replace the kingdoms of this world, and then will never end. Daniel chapter 7 tells us a similar Story, but with different images. This time, the kingdoms of this world are these nasty looking beasts who are coming out of the sea. And then the focus shifts to heaven. We see God on his throne, this magnificent picture of uh, of, uh, worship going on there in heaven. And he's about to execute judgment on the kingdoms of this world. And then a mysterious element is introduced. The way he will execute judgment is through one like a son of man. That's the title we referred to a couple of weeks ago that Jesus referred to himself by, the Son of Man. One like a Son of Man who has eternally been in heaven in preparation. And to him will be given the kingdom and the power and the authority. The Son of Man, both human and divine. And when Jesus used that title of himself, part of what he was referring to, not the whole thing, but part of it was, everyone would have thought, Daniel chapter 7, one like a Son of Man, this divine man. through whom the kingdom is going to come. Paul's writing in Romans expands on this, but at the end of the section here in Daniel about this heavenly human being, the son of man, the language suddenly shifts from the fact that he is an individual 
to the fact that he is also a corporate community. And it says the, the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and possess it forever. It is given to the holy people of the Most High in that it is given to the one man. And Paul interprets this then in the New Testament as this new humanity. Humanity as it is now, fallen, corrupt, is represented by the kingdoms of this world. That is man in Adam. But prepared for us in heaven for all eternity is a new humanity. And that new humanity is represented by this one individual man, Jesus Christ, the Son of Man. And he is the one who is the rock that will pulverize the kingdoms of this world and his kingdom will last forever and ever. And in him, a new humanity will be born. So to summarize Daniel's teaching in these two chapters, this age which we live in now is an age which is doomed to corruption. It's epitomized by one oppressive regime following another. But there's a time coming when God will transform reality, when there will be a new day, a new era, a new world. And all those pictures in Isaiah are what will happen when this age dawns, when this time comes. What Daniel gives us is that this dawning of a new age is something which is violent, is cataclysmic, is sudden, and it will break into history suddenly and dramatically and everything will be changed. Now if you put together Daniel and Isaiah, their vision of the future can be summarized as great expectations. Huge and massive, great expectations. And the Old Testament ends on this high note of great expectations. The last two chapters of Malachi, for instance, the last book in the Old Testament, uh, ends with this great expectation. You know, suddenly the awaited one, the Son of Man, will come, will bring his kingdom. And it's, we just left kind of pregnant pause at the end of the Old Testament. Now what you may not realize is that the gap between the last book of the Old Testament being written and the first book of the New Testament, or at least the time of Jesus, is between four and 500 years. It's a time when nothing's being written because God is not speaking. There were no more prophets actually speaking at that time. So it's just gone silent. After this great build-up, it's suddenly silent. When God speaks into your own life and then takes longer than we think to act, you know, we get frustrated. Imagine having to wait 500 years for the great expectation to be fulfilled. And so as they waited, they began to reinterpret it. I mean, the, you know, all these pictures added together and is this going to happen? How will it happen? And uh, obviously the, the overthrowing of kingdoms of this world. Now, they were living, the Jewish people in Israel were living under the occupation of the Romans. And so a number of them messianic pretenders probably you know people who thought well we can bring the kingdom perhaps this will usher the kingdom in if we start beating up some romans we'll start some murder some romans and acts of terrorism and try and overthrow the roman authorities this could be the inbreaking again of the kingdom which of course the kingdom of israel is what they were thinking that would be established into this dark place of desperate waiting and at the same time, bear in mind, generations and generations of waiting doesn't leave you desperate every day waiting. It leaves you tired of waiting. So you've got this great apathy at the same time as this desperation. And suddenly we have the arrival of John the Baptist into this picture. 
And it's hard to realize how just explosive his arrival was on the scene unless we build up the background of the Jewish hope as we have just now seen it in this fleeting summary. But there's a whole lot more. If you read the Old Testament, you'll discover a whole lot more than what I've talked about. Suddenly, there's this wild-looking guy in the wilderness fulfilling a lot of things which have been predicted in the Old Testament. He's wearing a garb, you know, a outfit made of camel hair, Leather belt around his waist, he's eating locusts and honey, and he is announcing that the long-awaited one is coming. He's saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And he says, I am the one fulfilling what Isaiah predicted. I am a voice of one crying aloud in the wilderness, prepare the way for the coming of the Lord, the Messiah, and the inbreaking of God's kingdom. And then Jesus appears on the scene very shortly afterwards, and I'm just going to, as I begin to summarize, look at three words which describe Jesus' ministry. And the first word is the word immediately. It will differ from translation to translation of the Bible, but this word immediately captures just the inbreaking of what Jesus suddenly began to do. And it's a bit like a film. You know, you go to the movies and you just watch this film. And it's like, when is, what is happening? You're waiting and waiting and waiting for a plot to come. And then suddenly, boom, and it all sort of unfolds like that. And if you read the book of Mark, particularly, he captures this. And his favorite word probably is immediately or its translations. Let's just look at the first chapter of Mark. Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist. And it says, at once the Spirit sent him into the wilderness, where he goes off, he has a bit of a tussle with Satan, and uh, he then walks beside the Sea of Galilee, sees Simon and his brother Andrew, and he says, come follow me. At once they left their nets and followed him. When they'd gone a little further, they saw another couple of people. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father, and they came with him. They go into this uh, synagogue in Capernaum, just then a man in the synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit cried out and he immediately cast this demon out of him and uh, tells him to be quiet. News quickly spread over the whole region. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went to uh, this guy's house. His mother-in-law was sick, Simon Peter's mother-in-law, and they immediately told Jesus about her. So he went into her, he heals her instantly and uh, she comes down and prepares supper. That evening... That very evening after sunset, the people brought to him all sorts of people who were in all sorts of difficulty. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many people. And then at the end of that evening, he goes out to the countryside just to be quiet and alone with his father for a while. And the disciples eventually find him. Very early in the morning, while it's still dark, they find him. And he says, let's go somewhere else to the nearby villages so that I can preach there also with this message this message, of course, of the kingdom. And you just have this great sense of immediacy. Everything's happening very quickly. All the things that, or many of the things anyway, that Isaiah had talked about started happening. The blind are seeing. The lame are walking. Evil is being trampled on as Jesus expresses God's nature wherever he goes. The second word I just want to look at is which really characterizes the arrival of the coming of the kingdom in Jesus, is the word authority. He's operating in an authority of such a nature that it is clear that he is acting on God's authority. We see the authority in his teaching. His teaching, which is above the authority of Moses. Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible here, and it was basically the the law. 
for the whole people of Israel. And uh, all the people said, we have never heard anything like this. He speaks with, with authority. We used to, you know, our rabbis quoting another rabbi who quotes another rabbi who eventually quotes Moses. And Jesus comes along and said, you've heard it said through Moses, thus and so, but I say to you this further thing. He's speaking with a divine authority. And then when he calls men to follow him, they hear in that summons, the summons of God, and they leave everything instantly to follow him. We see his authority over demons. Demons are real. We meet them sometimes even in the 21st century. Certainly they met them then. And under Judaism, they would cast demons out, but they may take hours or days of wearing a demon down with incantations and chantings and prayers and all sorts of things like this. Jesus comes along and just says, out, and immediately demons are expulsed. Incredible. They were terrified of him, the demons are. Often with a scream, they would just take off. We see his authority over sin. And this is what caused a lot of heat from some of the scholars of the day because no one can forgive sin except for God alone. So some people break a hole in the roof. They drop down this guy who's on a mat. He's paralyzed. And uh, Jesus says, your sins, son, are forgiven. And everyone gets upset because... You can't forgive sins unless you're God. And he says, well, you know, um, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Get up and walk. And this guy picks up his mat and walks out in the sight of all of them. And just he demonstrates there his authority over sin. We see his authority over death. He raised a number of people from the dead. One of them was Lazarus, a friend of his who had died. He waited a few days. Lazarus has been in the tomb. He says, okay, open that stone up. And they say, you must be joking. It will stink in there. This body is beginning to decompose. And he says, no, open it up. And then he just speaks the word, come forth. And out comes this guy wearing his grave clothes. And uh, he's alive. We see his authority over nature. Jesus is asleep in a boat. He's with his disciples. And there's on the Sea of Galilee there. I've been there. It's, it's more like a sea than it is a lake. It's massive. And on that lake, you can get massive changes of weather and big squalls and huge storms. And so these, these guys, many of his disciples were fishermen who had spent their entire life to that point as fishermen fishing that lake. And so they knew when a storm was, was up, which was going to kill them. And they were terrified for their lives. They're going to drown. Massive, massive storm. And he's asleep in the boat. They wake him up and he speaks to the storm as one would speak to a a dog. If there's a dog with muddy paws jumping up at you, you would just say, down or stop it. And it says Jesus just got up and he rebuked the storm. He just said, down. And the storm just stilled instantly. The wind, and they, they said, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Many of the predictions in Isaiah are now being demonstrated in the authority of Jesus. And the third word which summarizes the kingdom of God coming in Jesus is mystery. Mystery. I don't know whether it's deliberate that these three points, anyone spot the alliteration there? But uh, those are the three points. Maybe by accident. I am. I am. While many of their expectations of the Messiah are being fulfilled in Jesus, at the same time, many of their expectations are not being fulfilled. Some of the pictures painted in the Old Testament are clearly not happening or don't seem to be happening. He doesn't, for instance, seem to be at all in a hurry to overthrow the occupying Romans and establish the kingdom again. Uh, He's just not bothered. I mean, Herod, who's he? And Pilate, I'm not bothered about them. I'm just 
bringing the message of the kingdom, which is ignoring that. The religious authorities of the day didn't recognize him at all. The only ones who really cottoned on immediately were the demons. They say, we know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. On another occasion, when they do recognize him as the Messiah, and they want to make him king by force, uh, he just walks away. He doesn't want that to happen. He's not going to establish the kingdom the way they had predicted it. And then Jesus has this habit of telling people like Peter, just as they've got it, they've realized who he is and what he's come to do, don't tell anyone. It's a secret. And this was so confusing to all of them because of this expectation and what was happening but wasn't quite happening, that even John the Baptist, who under the anointing of the Holy Spirit had pointed him out and said, he is the one, He's then in prison, and he sends some friends to Jesus to ask the question, are you the one, or should we expect someone else? Basically, because you don't seem to be doing everything that we thought the one Isaiah and the other prophets wrote about was supposed to do. And in response, Jesus just lifts passages right out of Isaiah, and very deliberately does that, and he says this, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight. The lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Essentially, he's saying, the answer is yes, I am the one. Just take a look at the fulfillment of many of the Old Testament prophets. But he adds, blessed is anyone who doesn't stumble on account of me. He may have meant by that, I am fulfilling what is prophesied, but it's not All as you expected. You may not understand, but hang in there. And there is a lot which is is just mysterious about the kingdom. Mystery is, is a very powerful word as it describes this, as we'll see next week as we look further into the mystery and some of the answers to that. But Jesus didn't seem to fulfill everyone's expectations of the Messiah. And uh, of the Son of Man, breaking into Israel's history and establishing God's kingdom. But as we'll see next week, some of that mystery will be clearer to us as we look at Jesus' teaching on the kingdom. And we look at some of the implications of that. And so, if I've not worked you too hard this evening, I look forward to seeing you then.